Well, hello, everyone, and Happy New Year to all of you. I think that God has some great things in store for us in 2023. I'm convinced of that, and uh, I trust that in your life, if you're following Jesus, you already sense that and are seeing some signs of that. Well, as you know, we're kicking off a brand new series today called So Much More, and it's going to be straight out of the book of Exodus. I don't know if this will shock you or not, but the book of Exodus in the Old Testament is really the key to understanding the entire Bible. You see, the New Testament refers back to the happenings recorded in Exodus over and over and over again. Well, you ask, well, what really did happen there? Well, the essence of the story, it's one of deliverance. You see, the background, and you catch this part in the book of Genesis, a guy named Joseph is sold into slavery. He winds up in Egypt, and he becomes the second in command just below Pharaoh. And through a series of miraculous events and revelations, God allows this leader, Joseph, to actually see into the future and what's coming. And he's able to get Egypt prepared for a coming famine. And that is so important because Egypt survives the famine and actually flourishes through it at a time when other nations are devastated. So Egypt is definitely a world power. And the Hebrew people, Joseph's people, who started off, with about 70 of them, they are in this privileged position now. In fact, they're given some of the most fertile land in all of Egypt in a place called Goshen in the Nile River Delta. Started off with about 70. They end up being a mighty nation of over 2 million. So, We pick the story up today in chapter one of Exodus, and I'm gonna start reading in verse six. It says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. So you see, the years are passing by here and generations are are beginning to pass away. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. And I love this next line, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. By the way, you could do a PhD on that and apply it to church history because that's really the story of God's people, the church. The more they've been oppressed for 2,000 years, the more they have multiplied, and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. 
They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Now think of this dramatic change. What started out with about 70 people, including brothers and moms and and dads and children and grandchildren, and now number over 2 million after a period of roughly 400 years. And I'm I'm struck by that phrase in verse 8 that we saw, where it talks about a new king, a new pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Now, don't interpret from that that it means he'd never heard of him. That's not what it means. Oh, he knew the legend of Joseph. He knew the story. What it means is he had no appreciation any longer for either Joseph, Joseph's people, or Joseph's God. And so he's paranoid, honestly, because they're flourishing in the land so much. He thinks, what if they revolt? What if they turn against us? What if they join our enemies? What if they just flat out leave? It'll be devastating to our economy. So in his paranoia and fear, he reduces them to slave labor. And so they have to do all of Pharaoh's jobs for it. But in spite of the oppression, they continue to flourish. So Pharaoh cranks up the pressure even more. In verse 22 of chapter one, we read, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh is directing a mass genocidal policy here that will destroy all the Israeli male babies. And as you read on in the story, it's so provocative. There's one baby boy who survives. His parents create a little bassinet. They make it watertight, and they launch it out into the Nile River among the bulrushes. This baby was later named Moses, and he's one of the great heroes in all of God's salvation history. It was Moses that God used as his human instrument to lead these enslaved people out of bondage into a new land of freedom. I'm telling you, folks, this is a story unlike any other. And as I say, it is retold over and over again in the Bible. This is the story that we're going to trace for the coming several weeks together. But I want you to understand this. It's not just a history lesson. There are two stories being told here. Oh, yes, there will be an historical story that happened in a particular place at a particular time. But the other story, are you ready for this? It's your story. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, what's called a disciple, this is your story too. Oh, we're gonna look at their story. It's raw, it's real, it's gritty, and it is exciting. But more importantly, we're gonna look at our story. Because if you belong to Jesus, you too have been delivered. You too have come out of bondage. Oh, you may not have had a taskmaster cracking a whip on your back every day, but the bondage to sin was just as real. 
and the miracle of your salvation is just as great. And just as they were on a journey to a land called Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, guess what? You and I are on a journey too if we're following Jesus. We're on a journey to a life of abundance and fullness in the Holy Spirit, a life that is satisfying, a life, in one word, of flourishing. So I hope you get the thing here. Their story is filled with lessons that can help us. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it will tell you as much that their story is just full of lessons, including warnings from bad examples, as well as vital spiritual lessons from the things that were going on. And that's what we're going to look at over the coming weeks. Now, as we kick it off today, today, I want to do a 30,000-foot flyover. Now, next week, we're going to go from a floodlight to a spotlight. You with me? Next week, we're going to Put the spotlight on us. We're going to get very personal next week as we talk about the kind of life that God uses. And so in this new year, if you want God to use your life and do things through you, whatever your age, next week is the week for you. We're going to look at principles straight out of God's word on the kind of person that God really can use. I don't want you to miss that. But today, it's a little bit more of a floodlight rather than a spotlight. I want us to dive into the big picture of what's going on here. So the first statement I would make is this. God brought you out of bondage to sin and Satan. Here is the brutal reality. The Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians, and they were suffering horribly. Please understand their situation was hopeless, except for divine intervention. That's our situation, too. The Bible says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. That's a statement about our current reality. We are right now, present tense, spiritually separated from God, Unless, unless we've been regenerated and given new birth and life by the Spirit of God. So as unregenerate, spiritually dead people, guess what? Instead of the nature of God driving us, we're driven by the sinful nature. We're in bondage to the sinful nature. Every person born into this world is in that bondage to the sinful nature. How do we get delivered from that? Well, the Israelites had to realize they couldn't do it on their own. They had to come to that realization. Oh, there was a time when Moses thought he could do it. He killed an Egyptian taskmaster who was abusing a slave. Maybe he thought they would rise up in revolt and join him, and he would deliver them in his own power and might. But he realized he didn't have what it took. He ends up spending 40 years hiding out in the Midianite desert, living in obscurity, tending sheep. Moses learned that even though I sincerely want to free the people, I just can't do it in my human strength. 
Boy, that's a, that's a lesson for us modern people to learn. We try to fix our problems. We try substance, substances of all different kinds. We try all kinds of self-help therapies. We try human strategies, but we just end up more discouraged and disillusioned and more defeated. God had to set them free, and he did it in such an interesting way. He did it through the blood of a lamb. Now, we're gonna look at that later in detail in one of the upcoming messages, but, but here's how it worked. God sent nine plagues against the Egyptians, each of them represented an attack on one of the Egyptian gods. <coughs> but all of them just seemed to harden Pharaoh's heart more. But finally, in one-tenth and last plague, God said there's gonna be a remedy to all this. If you want the death angel to pass over your home, you gotta put the blood of a lamb on the lentil, on the doorpost of your house. And God said when your house is, quote, covered with the blood, the death angel will pass over you. Exodus 12, 13, it's put like this. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And a bit later in the narrative, that event is actually called the Passover because of how the angel of death passed over every household where that blood had covered it. Now, th this whole thing, again, so filled with lessons, it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ our Lord would do for us on the cross. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's Jesus' blood that protects us from the judgment of God. Christ is truly our Passover lamb. And that's why the words of John the Baptist were so poignant when he sees Jesus approaching him at the Jordan River and he says, John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jewish person who had grown up observing Passover knew exactly what John meant by that. Whoa. It's, it's now the once for all Lamb. It's now the one who's come to once and for all Pay the sacrifice that our sins demand. And Jesus absorbed the just, just punishment of God for sin within himself as our substitute on the cross. And so when any one of us that God is drawing, when any one of us by faith places our trust in the blood of Jesus to be applied to our lives, listen, that's the only way we can be freed from our bondage to sin. So what we're saying here is that the historical picture of what happened to Israel is really like a type of our deliverance from bondage to sin. 
and the blood of Jesus is applied to my life and I am freed by God from my sinful human nature. And when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I just wonder, has that ever happened to you? You see, that's kind of the question of all questions. Has that really, has that moment ever really come where you've experienced that deliverance? Oh, there's a big journey after that. That's just the start when you get, quote, delivered out of Egypt. But so many of you, I know you're on that journey and I rejoice with you. But here's another statement I want us to look at today. And that is God brought you out of the old life Get this now, if you're on that journey, he brought you out of that old life into a life of fullness and flourishing. Now, since I've never been humanly enslaved by a literal taskmaster, I can't imagine the relief it must have been when they came out. What a relief. Can you can even begin to imagine that? <coughs> Coming out of bondage like that. But can I tell you something? Coming out of bondage to sin is also a wonderful relief. I'll never forget the Sunday night. It was a Father's Day, June the 16th, 1974, when God had worked in my life as a very young man and brought me to the place of true repentance, where I knelt and prayed that Jesus would forgive all of my sin, adopt me into his family, and come in by his spirit and begin to change me from the inside out. I tell you, I floated out of that little church building that night. That's what it felt like. Now, now listen, your feeling doesn't have to be exactly like my feeling. I hope we all understand that. God deals with different people in different ways. I'm just telling you how it felt for me. What a relief. I would use the word literally euphoric. That's how miserable I was in my bondage before. And now I knew all that sin is gone. It's been covered by the blood of Jesus. I will never be in condemnation again. I mean, if that doesn't make you kind of happy, I don't know what will, right? I mean, seriously. And and listen, even though we all have these different emotional experiences, It's not about the emotion. It's about what happens substantively when our sins are forgiven. But what a wonderful relief. Whoa, the old is gone. The new is on the way. But please hear this. That's not the only reason God saved me. If if that's all God had in mind, he might have just raptured me to heaven at that moment, right? Right? And the same with you. And it's not what all God had in mind for these ancient Israelites either. The reason God saved them is given here in this passage. It said, the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've brought them, excuse me, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I've come down to rescue them from bondage to the Egyptians to bring them into a new land. 
in modern terms, that would be called flourishing. In every wonderful sense of that word. And that's what God wants for you and me. It's a life where we daily, moment by moment, in dependence on the Holy Spirit, we're in this vital union with Christ. Now, please be clear on this. The land of Canaan doesn't represent heaven as many of our old hymns might have us believe. I grew up singing hymns talking about going to Canaan land, and, 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 and those are fine. Just the theology is a little off. That's not heaven. In the typology here, Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey, doesn't represent heaven because there's enemies there and giants there and all kinds of challenges. That's not heaven. That would be horrible typology. The analogy is the abundant life where, yes, there are still enemies as a Christian. Yes, there are still challenges. You bet there are tons of them, but God has this abundant life for you lived in the fullness of the Spirit moment by moment. He brought you out to bring you in to that. I love Deuteronomy 6, verse 23. But he brought us out from there. This is how Moses later put it. He brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. I love those eight words. He brought us out to bring us in. He brought us out to bring us in. I almost named this sermon that, but I gave it a little different title. He brought us out to bring us in. Can we say that out loud together, please, at all of our locations? He brought us out to bring us in. Let's try it once more. He brought us out to bring us in. What a fabulous, fabulous reality that is. And one of the reasons that I believe God gave us so much material about their experience and all of their struggles and their wandering and all that is because God knew it would be so relevant to us. Can I tell you what I've experienced as a pastor? So many people I know, people in the church, people on the periphery of the church, people who kind of are in and out of the church, here, here's the thing that I sense, okay? Maybe this is your experience or not. I meet a lot of people, and I meet a lot of people. This is the message I get from, Pastor, I just want my ticket punched to heaven. Okay? No, I don't want any fullness of life. No, I'm not interested in any, no, fullness of the spirit. No, no thanks, don't, don't care about that. Just wanna be sure my ticket is punched to heaven. And so millions of Christians are just floundering in frustration and defeat, in the wilderness, as it were. If that's you, I just want to say to you, there's so much more. There's so much more. And I just believe at the start of this new year, 2023, if you just had a glimpse of the joy and the fulfillment that God has for you, you would be a lot more hungry for it. There's so much more, but sadly, the attitude, no, just want my ticket punched to have a God. Hey, just 
forgive the sins and then we'll see you later. Just let me do my own thing. I just want to live my own life. I can handle it on. Hey, if I get in trouble, if I get in trouble, then I'll call on you, okay? But I'm, I'm totally good here. See you in heaven. You're going to be frustrated, defeated, floundering for the rest of your life if that's your attitude. God brought you out to bring you in. God brought you out to bring you in. He wants to guide you every single day so that your life can actually give the world an accurate view of who God is. When we're taking detours through the wilderness, we're not giving the world a real good idea of who God really is. We're giving twisted ideas of who God really is. We're not a very good advertisement for him, for him, quite frankly. Now, this maturity doesn't happen overnight. Oh, yes, there are challenges. But I believe that if you could just get, get a glimpse of what God wants to do in and through you in 2023, I honestly believe, I honestly believe it would blow your mind. Another declaration, the final one I wanna make is God brings you into a life of flourishing, everything we've just been saying, so that, do you see those words? So that you can help others flourish. I hope you're listening right now. God's design was never, ever, ever, ever just to bless them. Ever. Oh, he wanted to bless them. That's the flourishing, the abundant life, the land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, he has that for his people. You could call it fullness, flourishing, whatever you want to call it. Abundant life, satisfaction. But it's never meant to stop there. God's heart was always, has always, is always that we would be channels of blessing to others. He made this clear way back in Genesis 12 when he said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Boy, I tell you, if anybody's wondering if God wants to bless his people, I don't know, I have to scratch my head at that. I mean, the scripture is just so full of that message. Yes, 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 I want to bless you. I want to give you a full life, but it doesn't stop there. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's blessing is never meant for us alone. He blesses us so that we can bless the world. But I got a question for you. Just don't blurt out your answer, please. Would you say your life is more of a clog or a channel? Don't blurt your answer out. Are you more of a clog or a channel? Or let's try a different analogy. Don't blurt your answer out. Would you say that your life today, honestly, if you're doing an honest snapshot and evaluate, is your life more of a reservoir or a river? Which would describe you better? Is it all about... Me and mine, me and Jesus, just want to get all, my, all the goodies for me. That's a reservoir. 
Or is it, oh, I love the blessings of God, but wow, I'm a river. Man, the thing that brings me so much joy is when I can be a river, a channel of blessings to others. Now, here's why that question is important. As you study the Old Testament narrative, and we're gonna do that over these coming weeks, what you find is that inevitably when Israel forgot that lesson and they thought it was just about them, God had to actually discipline them to get their thinking straight. In fact, at one point in their history, hundreds of years later from this event, he actually allowed their enemies to discipline them, the Babylonians. And they were taken into exile for 70 years, driven from their homeland. And folks, the parallels to us are amazing. Their temptation is honestly our temptation. If I were doing a commentary on American Christianity, I know this is a generalization, a stereotype. If the shoe doesn't fit, then don't wear it, okay? Don't wear it. This is not you, and I know it's not true of scores and scores of the people of grace. It's not true. But if I were doing a commentary, I would say the problem with American Christianity is so many think it's just Jesus and me. It's just me and Jesus, God loves me, hallelujah, but I'm not sure he loves my neighbor. (laughs) Christian, this world is not your home. You weren't even made for this world. God doesn't have us here to get all comfortable in this wilderness called the 21st century. Our main purpose here is to reach and bless others with his gospel so they can come to know him and they can flourish too in every sense of the world. So church, hear me. At Saratoga, at Half Moon, at Latham, the focus always has to be outward, always. Last fall, We took 11 Tuesday evenings and came together with this thing called Alpha and we had conversations about faith and truth and meaning in life and what the gospel of Jesus is all about. That took a lot of time and sacrifice and effort on the part of scores of people. Why would we do that? Because it's not just about me and Jesus. It's about sharing Jesus with the world. And the outward focus can never stop. But again, if I were doing a summary of church history over 2,000 years, I would say, wow, that lesson is easy to forget. Because the church just seems to inevitably go back to Inward focus, inward focus, inward focus. Me and Jesus, our blessings. Are we having fun? Are we entertained? Are we having a good life? Are we happy? Those are not unimportant questions. They're just not the most important ones. We've always got to look out. That's why we reach out to our community. 
right in the capital district through grace and action and try to help people flourish. That's why we go around the globe, literally around the world to places like Guatemala and Peru and Haiti and Poland and Croatia and a long list of other countries. Why? Because we want to bless the people groups of the world. We want to share the gospel with them. Amen. That's why we're here. That's why Paul would make an outrageous statement like he made in Acts 20, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Nothing. It wasn't about Jesus and me with Paul. He got it. I consider my life worth nothing. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's that task, Paul? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's why we're here. There's so much more, folks. And when you strip life down to the bottom line, the motivation behind everything the Christian does should be to glorify God by knowing him in his fullness and making him known. Is that what your life is about? I just want you to know I am so imperfect. I am so flawed. I've got so far to go. I have so many inadequacies. Just ask Debbie. I mean, really, really, really. She would tell you the truth, not being mean or anything. She would tell you the truth. We're just like that. She'd go, yeah, that guy's a work in process, man. I'll tell you right now. But in spite of all that, can I tell you something? I can tell you without flinching, I'm all about knowing God and making him known. That's why I get up every day. That's why I immerse myself in the scriptures every day. That's why I yearn and seek for God every day. I want you to know there's so much more for you. And that's what this series is about. No matter where you are on the journey right now, God has more in store. He rescues us to make us rescuers. Father, would you help us in this series to keep the focus on you? And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would come and energize people. Maybe they've grown a little sloppy or lethargic. Maybe they've just gotten life out of focus a bit. I don't know. But if we can't honestly say with Paul that I consider my life worth nothing, nothing, except to testify to the gospel of God's grace, then may this be a time of renewal and renewed passion and revival and revitalization in our lives and in our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.